Okay, lesson eight. And if you have your handouts, of course, it says uh, lesson eight, the penalty, provision, and result, basically, of sin. So we're looking at mankind in the fall. And as we see in, we've seen the creation, we've seen the apex of creation, which is man. And then we saw how man fell last time. And we saw how sin entered the world, sin entered the world through a man, through Adam, five, Romans 5, 12. It entered through the world, through the whole universe, through Satan, Isaiah. And, and, and as we look, as we continue in this section, we're going to look at three things. Let me get this. Move up a little bit here. Okay, we're going to look at three things concerning man and the fall. And number one is we're going to see the penalty of sin. And what what is that? Well, you know, because it says the wages of sin is is death. So we already kind of know what that is. We're going to see the penalty of sin, but we're also going to see uh, what what. Uh, what God gave as a penalty to each one. We're going to see the provision for sin. And then we're going to see the results of the fall. And it's really good. You know, if you have a penalty of sin, if you don't have a provision, we're all in trouble, right? And so we see that God does this. He has a, the penalty, the provision, and the results of the fall. So you can turn in your Bibles if you want to. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. This is where we were last week when we saw this. And what happened? We saw the creation of man by God. He was placed in the garden. He was given instructions. And then, you know, then there was, of course, the animals. And then there was the, the woman, the Isha. Out of the man, the ish, and, uh, and Adam's name is Adama, which means dirt, because he came from the dust of the ground. And God gave instructions, and he said, you can eat from all the trees in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that for the day that you eat of it. Die, and you shall surely die. We saw what happened. And let me just remind you that dying, we shall surely die. Dying spiritually, you'll die physically. And uh, physical death is a result of spiritual death. So when we look at all this, we saw that the effects of the fall, and we're going to see the penalty, and we're going to see all of those kind of things. So uh, we saw shame and separation. And when we sin, it's the same way. It's just amazing. When you think about it, when you do something, when you know you do something that's contrary to God's word, to, to God, to our to our fellowship with Him, the moment we do it, we feel shame and their separation. It, it's just the way it is. That's the result. Well, let's see what happened, the effects. As we continue, we're going to see what was God, and I've just got it here, what was God's command to Adam and Eve? And it was, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then, in a positive way, he said, you can eat from everything. You can eat from every tree, any tree of the garden, except for one thing, and that was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge. So it's the negative was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from everything else. It's sort of amazing when you think about it. What if, what if in our whole lives there was only one thing? You could do wrong. <laughs> think about that. We go. Well, it's not as that doesn't seem to be as bad. Well, I, I think if we even in a if we were in a situation where there was only one thing we could do wrong, we would still probably do it wrong. And so he said to him, and uh, the consequences was this: when you eat, you die. And we talked about this. The Hebrew says, "Die and you will die," or it actually it actually says, "Die and you will surely die." And that idea, as I think, is dying physically. I mean, dying spiritually, you'll die physically. And, uh, you know, we hate death. I mean, we do. I mean, it, we, we don't want people to die. And, and uh, of course, we know as believers, we say when a person dies to be absent from, as a Christian, to be absent from the body's present with the Lord. And we talk about how good that is. But at the same time, well, we don't like death. We hate death. Death is the last enemy. Jesus Christ has defeated death. Death is not the end. That's one good thing about it. So as we continue, let's think about what happened. So here's this, the garden, and Satan uh, comes to Eve, and we said that he, he made her doubt two things, and so the, Satan raised two doubts con, uh, to Eve concerning God. First of all, about God's love and about God's word. And it's always that way. 
And even today, I mean, you know, I've known guys that have gone off to seminary where you're actually to study the Bible and all that, and they get there, and maybe there's professors or people there who don't hold to the Bible, don't hold to the Word, and before you know it, they, they're beginning to doubt the Word of God. They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't say that this is right and every aspect of it is right. Let me just tell you, I, I actually believe this. Because, I, I mean, I had opportunity to look at it in Hebrew. I, I, I had opportunity to study it in Greek as well, and as, even now. And I'm going to tell you, the more I study it, the more I'm convinced it's God's Word, not less. People, Some people say, well, if you really get into it, you're going to find that there's really a lot of issues. No, there's not. In fact, it is so perfect. It is so specific. When you're studying, especially when you're looking at it in the original language, it is so amazing how perfect the Word of God is. And so, uh, you know, I don't doubt the Word of God, whatever it says. Don't doubt God's love. God loves us with an everlasting, unconditional love. So let's think about it. They fell, and God came looking for them. And, and I want you to think about this. So here they are. God shows up. And remember, he's coming, and they hear him coming. And because there's shame and separation they go hide you know they're shame and they're separated he comes and he says adam where are you and and adam finally man because god's looking for him and he finally comes and he says have you eaten what are you doing over there well you know we were naked and you know we were afraid and all that. what have you eaten from the tree and what he really wanted him to say was what yeah i blew it i i, I didn't listen to you i mean I, I wasn't watching what i was doing and i mean but he said no the the woman you gave me so he actually blamed two right there sometimes we miss it and we think he just blames the woman he actually blames god he said the woman you gave me and not not the woman i found you know but the woman you gave me and so he basically blames god and the woman and then the woman and, and you could see him like what happened and, he, and so he steps right here and he looks at the at the woman and her name of course is isha is not eve is not eve until after he names her, and then he says, what did you do? And instead of her saying, I messed up, she says, the serpent. And so he steps down here, and he said, well, I'm stepping out of the camera thing. He steps right here and stands in front of the serpent. Now, what's going to be amazing is when he gives the consequences, he starts with Satan, goes back to the woman, and goes back to the man. So he goes, he starts down the line, and then he comes back up the line. So it's pretty powerful. And so let's see it. Let's start with the penalty. And let's start the penalty of sin. And if you're Genesis 3.14, this is where uh, the Lord is speaking to the serpent. And so we're talking about the serpent. That's the devil. And, and let me just throw this out again. <clears throat> I think it's amazing when you look at the Bible, we act like, you know, we read it, and we, we've read it so many times in our lives, we, we don't always stop to think. And like we said, now, what did this serpent look like? What did it look like? It wasn't slithering on the ground, because that's the curse. That's part of the consequences. So it wasn't that. And the serpent talked, and, and we said that Eve didn't seem to be shook up that this animal was talking to her. And the other thing we know is that the serpent, whatever it was, if it was an animal, it was possessed or controlled, or it was either Satan in the form of a serpent or Satan controlling this serpent. And so that we see now the penalties are going to come. And he says to, to, uh, to the serpent in Genesis 3.14, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, Cursed are you above all the cattle, more than the beasts of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And so the first aspect of the penalty is to crawl on the belly and eat dust. And you know, how, how many of you love snakes? Really, hardly any. Nobody ever raises our hand. I mean, we, we, we see them, and you go, oh, my gosh. And they're just slithering along, and they look, you know, and that's part of, I think, part of the curse. I mean, when you see a dog, you, you, you go, oh, come on, look at that sweet dog. You see a snake, you go, oh. 
how gross, how mean, how, how horrible. And so it's crawl on the belly. That's part of the deal. And then there's the idea that the seed of woman will crush his head. Notice what he goes on to say. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And what we really see there is this, this Genesis 3.15, this seed of woman who we know is going to be the Messiah and the Savior is going to come. And he's going to basically bruise the head of the serpent, which is going to basically be the end of the serpent. And, he sh and you shall bruise him on the heel. That means you're going you're gonna to hurt the seed of woman somehow. And, of course, when we look ahead into the eternity, off, um, into the future from this, we see that that's Jesus on the cross, and he's taking the sin of mankind, and he's being crushed and bruised for us. But he is also destroying Satan. He, he defeats Satan on the cross. And so we see that, the penalty of sin there, the serpent. And then if you go down and you get Genesis 3.15, foretelling of Jesus who would be wounded but destroy the power of the devil. Right then, right then, let, let, me, let me throw some things out for just a second. Have you ever thought about this, this cosmic conflict? Because we, have, we know that this, 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 this demonic being, this angelic demonic being, since he failed, since he wanted to be like God, is in rebellion against the true God. This being is wanting to do everything he can to destroy mankind. We know that God did not provide salvation for the fallen angels. But when man sins, we're going to find that God provides a way of salvation for man. There's a passage in the Bible where it says that angels desire to look into the things that God has done. It's a strange thing. Think if you're an angel and you see that angels sin and God separates them forever. Man sins, and God provides a way that man could be reconciled and be with him. And that's why I think, you know, Satan hates man. That's why he hates us. One of the, he hates God, and he hates us, and he will try to do anything he can to destroy you. Anything that he can, that he will do to destroy you, you individually. Not just our church. He would destroy. He'd love to destroy our church. He would love to destroy anything that has a clear grace message. Anything that gives that holds to the Bible. Yes, if you don't hold to the Bible, you don't believe the Bible. He ain't care. He said, just keep right on doing on that. You're messing all kind of people up. And that's wonderful. But people who hold to the Bible, people who believe the Bible's true, people who hold to the truths of the of the gospel, of the Bible. He's he he hates us. He's a roaring lion seeking who he, who may devour. And so here at the very beginning, God says to him. Your whip, it's over. It's already over for you. It may not be right this second because I'm going to allow you to be the prince of the power of the air. God does that. But there's going to come a time when he will be crushed and it'll be over with. And that's the Satan aspect, and that's really powerful. And so then we go to the woman. He's moving down the line, and he goes to the woman. And, and I put, we put Eve there, but her name right now is Isha. Ish is the Hebrew for man. Isha is out of man. And she's going to be named a little bit later. But what about the penalty? And there's a twofold. By the way, there's twofold in each one. The first one for the ser serpent is he crawls on his belly and then he'll be crushed. Okay, the woman, there's going to be two as well. This one is going to be pain in childbirth. Notice what it says to the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you'll bring forth, you'll bring forth children. Most women, there, every now and then there's some women that I've talked to that said they didn't have that much pain in childbirth. Or that there are a lot of women who say, well, I had the, what do you call the thing? I forgot yeah, epidural, I had that, or I had something else, and so it was a lot easier, it was a lot better. But we know that if you just have a baby without anything, it's going to hurt really, really bad. 
And that's part, I mean, I hate to say this, but that's part of the fall, isn't it? It's part of the curse. Uh, let me, we'll get to it in just a minute, but listen, every time somebody dies, you should say, that's part of the curse. Every time somebody dies, every time something dies, that's part of the curse. So every time a woman has a baby and it, we say, oh, how was it? Oh, it was tough. That, that's part of the fall. Now, there's something else, too. Notice it says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and pain you'll bring forth children. Yet, watch this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, a lot of people read that and they say when it says your desire will be for your husband, you'll want your husband sexually because because you're going to want him, but then it's going to hurt to have a baby. And then the part says, and he will rule over you. Wait a minute. And you say, wait a minute, what's going on? Well, first of all, when it says desire, when it says your desire will be for your husband, that word desire means desire to rule. It literally says you will desire to rule your husband. And, and this is the desire to rule. And you may say, what do you get that? Listen, that word desire is so unique, it is only used one other place in the whole Old Testament. And uh, if you turn over to chapter 4, verse 7, the very next chapter, this is where Cain is, is, is rebelling against God. And in verse 7 it says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. The word there is desire to rule. It's exactly the same word. Only two places. It's used in the whole Bible. And so it actually means desire to rule. And so part of the conflict, part of the curse, part of the fall is the fact that it says, and he will rule over you. Who is the head of the home biblically? Who's supposed to be the head of the home? The man is. I mean, okay, but what's the woman's old, sometimes desire is to rule. I mean, there's the, you're not doing it right, you know. That's what she said. You, you know, if you knew what you're doing, you know. And so the bottom line is there's a conflict going on. That's why in Jesus Christ, the husband and the wife, picture of Christ and the church and all that coming together, you can have a great, great family and marriage and all that. But, but there is a part of a curse in which the woman desires to rule even though the man also desires to rule, and sometimes the man is really aggressive, and, and he's not a very good ruler, and sometimes that conflict goes. And so you can see that the penalty, pain in childbirth, and desire to rule her husband, really a strong thing, and it's a, it's a conflict in the headship. And uh, so we see that now. And, and so what does desire for a husband mean? It, the tendency for the woman to dominate her husband, one to rule. And, you know, I've seen, and listen, I, I mean, I've been a pastor a long time, and I've seen people where the wife would say, he, don't ta he won't take leadership, so I have to take the leadership. And in reality, that's a conflict there because she's not supposed to take the leadership. And the man is supposed to take the leadership, so you've got problems in all those areas. And just think about uh, if there hadn't been the fall. Think about it, see how Adam and Eve, how, how connected they were, how everything was so good. They had perfect fellowship with each other, perfect fellowship with God, uh, dominion over the animals. Everything was great till the fall. Now, he says, here's going to be the problem now. Y'all have had it great up to this point, but guess what? You're, you're gonna have, when you have a baby, it's going to really hurt. And you're going to desire to rule over your husband. You're going to desire to be the boss, and but he's going to rule over you, and he's going to push you down. So there's going to be conflicts. 
with that, we now move to the man, to the, to the man, that's Adam. And what is the penalty? It's twofold. The first one is, the ground is cursed, work is cursed. Look what he says. Then to Adam he said, because you've listened. Now, I want you to watch this carefully. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Who should he have listened to? God, the voice of God. So he had, a, he had a, an opportunity, either to listen to God or listen to the wife. And so he says, because you listen to the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree which I command you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In the toil of it you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall grow up for you and you shall eat the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. I mean, he's basically saying, you're going to have to work now. Listen, work, well, let me say this. Work, man was always to work. He was to have dominion over the world. He was to cultivate the garden. He was to take care of everything. So work is, work is not sin. There's nothing wrong with work. But work is now cursed. There's a problem there. It doesn't go as easy. And you go, boy, everything would be good if everything went smooth. But nothing ever really goes smooth. And, and when you look at the ground and you say, I want to plant some flowers. But you look over there and there's like weeds growing up everywhere. And you go, I thought I got all that stuff out of there. Everything, it just happens. And it's basically saying the ground is cursed. And work is cursed. Work is not sinful. When people say, boy, if we, if we hadn't fallen, we wouldn't have to work. No, no. Work is good. Work is great. Most people, well, let me, let me say this. A lot of people love their work. A lot of people love to work. I mean, there's some people that they'd go crazy if they didn't have a job, they didn't have something to do, they didn't work. And so work itself is not bad. In fact, it's what God put man on this earth to do, to rule over the world and to work and to take care of things. Uh, but it's cursed. The second thing is that man will die physically. Man will die physically. And that's what he goes on to say. He says, you will return to the ground because from it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. When people say things like, well, there was dinosaurs for millions of years, and then there was man, that's not biblical. Because if you had dinosaurs for millions of years, they're eating each other and killing each other, and there's death. There wasn't death until the fall of man. <clears throat> there was no death in this world. As through one man, death entered the world. Sin in the world and death by sin. So the only way you have death is through sin. And the only way you have sin is through Adam and Eve and their fall. And so you, when people start saying, well, yeah, they were all the dinosaurs and they ate each other up and everything like that. And then finally man came along. It doesn't fit the biblical pattern. It doesn't fit what the Bible says. So you have the penalties for the man and the woman. And if we stopped right there, it would be horrible. Except, except he's already told Satan that there's, a, there's the seed of woman coming. The seed of woman is coming. So we want to talk about provision, God's provision for sin. And let's think about Genesis 3.15. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between Satan and, and basically the, between your seed and her seed. And he's basically saying the seed of this serpent is, is Satan himself and the seed of the woman is the Messiah. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There's going to be a conflict and some things are going to happen. You see all the way through. And it's all the way through the Bible. From Adam and Eve to, to the people at the time of Noah, to Abraham and all of it, to Isaac, to Jacob, to, to the, going in Egypt, to coming out, all the way through, there's always this conflict. There's this, there's this fallen world system. And I mean, I like to, to think about it this way. There's Satan who God allows to rule the world, the world system, the cosmos, the fallen world. And you have to remember this, the fallen world. When it says, God so loved the world... It's cosmos. It's a fallen world. 
it says, He is the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. It's this, this word right here. It's cosmos. And so you have Satan who oversees or controls, rules this world. And then you have us, mankind. And we, we have a flesh. And we're sinful and all this. And we're fallen. And so Satan controls the world. And the world affects our flesh. When a person says, Satan's after me, I say, well, wow. You're <laughs> I don't mean this bad, but you're pretty important if Satan's after you because he's an angel and out of all the human beings in the world, he's chosen you. You know, you, I mean, he usually goes after world leaders. He usually goes after, in fact, even when you look at the book of Daniel, it's angels that are trying to affect world leaders, not Satan himself. So Satan is a very powerful being. He's, being, he's like a, ro a roaring lion. So I see it this way. Satan controls the system and the system affects our flesh and so that's that's what we are we're there and so thank the lord that god has provided a way to deal with the penalty of sin and god has provision the provision for sin and we're going to see it is the as, and i think we put it there is the seed of woman notice what he says and i'll put in between between the womb between you and the woman between your seed her seed the seed of woman you know let me erase this for just a second. And you've seen me, we've done this before. In fact, we did this in the first, first lesson. And we talked about the seed of woman. And then we talked about the seed of Abraham. And then we talked about the son of David. And then we talked about the son of man. And then we talked about the son of Mary. And then we talked about the Lamb of God. And the seed of woman is the one who's going to do what? Crush Satan. The seed of Abraham is the one who's going to bless the whole world because he's going to be the Savior of the world, going to be the Messiah. The son of David is going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will rule in righteousness and justice. The son of man is going to set up a kingdom. This is the book of Daniel. Set up a kingdom that will never end. The son of Mary is the Savior. You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from his sins. And the Lamb of God is the one who's going to take away the sin. So when we say that God... The promise is the seed of woman. Well, this is it. The seed of woman to the seed of Abraham to the son of David to the son of man to the son of Mary to the Lamb of God. That's, that's, the, that's the Bible. That's the flow. We saw that in the very first lesson. I usually, in the first, I don't usually put this one in there because we just go, you know, just give you the five. But there's, you can put that one in there as well and think through this. So God has the Savior, the Redeemer. And what did he do? He, he did this. By the way, who is the seed? The seed is Jesus. God's provision for man to be reconciled back to himself and to deal with sin and death. That's who Jesus Christ is. And that's why we talk about the story of the Bible is how the perfect God brings sinful man back to himself. How? Using his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Savior. As you look at this in Genesis 3, 20 and 21, he goes on to say, Now the man called his wife Eve. Think about this. Because she was the mother of all living. See, they believed. They, they already believed. And then what does God do? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What is that all about? What is that? that? What picture did God use to show the coming sacrifice of a Savior? By the way, when he, God killed that animal, that was the first animal that ever died, the best we can tell. Right? 
Think about that. They had never seen, they had never seen death. Think about this. Had they ever seen an animal die? Had they ever seen anything die? The moment they sinned, they brought sin and death into the world. And God then takes an animal as a substitute, kills the animal. And you can imagine they probably went, what in the world? They never seen anything die. Do you think they'd seen anything die? Do you think that when they fell, it was a long time before God came looking for them? I don't think it was. I think he came right there looking for them. And so we see that God has this picture as he kills an animal and makes the coats of skin. And I think it's a picture of covering sin until the Messiah would come. And when you think about this, the killing of an animal, a foreshadow of the Redeemer who would die for man's sin. This is going to be the substitute. Now think about this. There are three aspects, and I think we have them uh, at the top of the next page. The three aspects, and look what it is. First of all, it was from the Lord. The Lord provided by making the garments. The, the Lord provided the sacrifice. The Lord provided it all. That's one when you think about it, it is God who so loved the world he gave. God provides it all. So this sacrifice, this aspect was God's provisions by making the garments. The second thing we find is it was a substitute. The animal died in man's place. I put man's place. It's really the animal died in Adam's place. A substitute. Aren't you glad there's a substitute? You know, if you're playing sports you and you're loving the game, you don't want to come out of the game, you know, and somebody comes running in and they're your substitute and you have to leave. But in this situation, the, you know, I'm sure Adam and Eve are glad for the substitute. The third thing I want you to see, it was a blood sacrifice. The animal died, its blood was shed. So I want you to think about that. Uh, realize that... Um, They'd never seen death. They'd never seen blood, probably. Think about it. Wow. Now, with that in mind, has everybody got that written down? Most everybody got it written down? Uh, how, does this, how does this relate to us? Well, I've got it down there for you. Look at the first one. Uh, John three sixteen. It was from the Lord. It is God who so loved the world that God gave his son. In the same way that God gave the sacrifice for Adam and Eve, God gave his son Jesus Christ for us. The second thing is that Jesus is our substitute. Just like that animal was a sacrifice and a substitute, we know that Jesus is our substitute. For God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He is the sacrifice and the substitute. And the third thing, if you remember, it's a blood sacrifice. And Jesus' blood was shed. First Peter 1.18, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. So think about this. This is an amazing thing. So just like God took an animal, killed it, and covered their sin, then God sent his son, Jesus, who died for us, shed his blood to be our substitute. Powerful truths. What a foreshadow. You know, when you really look at the Bible, it does, it's just all the way through. It's just all the way through. Everything all the way through. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there can be no sacrifice. So let's get to the third part, and let's talk about the results. We've seen the... 
the penalty of sin. We've seen the provision, and we thank the Lord for the provision, the greatest thing of all, the seed of woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the son of man, the son of Mary, the Lamb of God. That's God's provision for us. And every, as, as you know, when we talked about this in, the, I think, lesson number one, is when you talk about it, God gives a little bit more information every time. The seed of a woman, then the seed of a, it had to be a Jewish person, had to be a descendant of David, had to be the one that fit here, had to be the, the virgin uh, from the Virgin Mary and, and then the one that John the Baptist pointed out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it is amazing. Well, let's, let's talk. Any, if you got questions, kind of stop me. And, but let's talk now about the results of the fall. Well, before the fall, there was what? There was what? Perfect fellowship. Think about it. Fellowship with God and man. Fellowship with Adam to the woman. And, and even, even what you probably say, fellowship with the animals. I mean, I don't, I don't know about y'all, but do, do you think that possibly animals communicated in some way different than maybe even today? I don't know. I mean, I just know that she just didn't... Every time I read that and the, and the serpent's talking to her, she doesn't appear to be shocked at all. Right? She doesn't say something like, how are you talking? You know, I'm not saying animals talked. I'm just saying something seems different. And definitely different after the fall. Before the fall, there's perfect fellowship. After the fall, there's death and separation. There's death and separation. And because the wages of sin is death. And so all, all of that ties in. After the fall, death, and separation. I want to show you something. We've done this before. I just want to remind you just so you can see this. We already talked about the fact that we're body, soul, and spirit. And so here's Adam. And he has a body. And he has a soul. And what else? Spirit. The body holds it all together. The soul relates to the world. And the spirit relates to God. And then the fall. And this is Adam. After the fall. He has a body. He has a soul. He has a conscience. He has a flesh. That's him. The body holds it together. The soul relates to the world. The conscience now... God says, now that you know right from wrong, because the tree was the knowledge of what? Good and evil. Now that you know right from wrong, he says do right, but we have, we're, we're fallen. We're fallen people now. We have a natural bent to what? To sin. I've had people say, I, I don't believe that. I said, well, do you teach your children to do right or do wrong? You don't teach your children to do wrong, do you? Well, they don't know. I said, well, don't they just naturally do wrong? But you have to teach them to do right. Don't hit your brother. Don't, don't quit, quit taking that and doing that. Stop shutting that door, right? I mean, it's just stuff they do all the time, and you have to say, learn to do what's right because there is a natural bent for every person. When a baby's crying, what are they actually saying? Feed me now. Or I'm not comfortable I don't know how to put it into words, but I'm not comfortable, and somebody better do something about this, right? <laughs> That's us. And then you get older, and you just have more subtle on how you do it. Well, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit taken back by the way they treated me. Really, really, you know. So that's, I mean, so this is us. And then, and then a believer, 
And let's say Adam as a believer, put it this way. Of course, with Adam, then believed, but, but it, that we have a body, we have a soul, we have a conscience, we have a flesh. And, and the moment we believe, we're born again and we have a spirit. This is dead. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're spiritually dead. And then when we believe, we're spiritually alive. And for us, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. So this is us. Now, probably Adam and Eve, the moment they believed, they're spiritually, spiritually alive. But, see, a lot of people get confused, and this is called regeneration, being made spiritually alive. And I, I, there are people who will say, well, that doesn't happen to the New Testament. Are you telling me that from Adam and Eve all the way up to Jesus and after that nobody was regenerated? The whole Old Testament, I mean, Saul became a what? A new man. Regeneration is, uh, where's the greatest passage in the Bible on regeneration? Where is it? You must be born again. Where's that passage? John 3, we just did it Sunday morning. Is that Old Testament or New Testament? That's Old Testament. New Testament doesn't start to the death of the testator. New Testament doesn't start to the death of Jesus Christ. Even though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, most of that we say those New Testament books, but the New Testament doesn't really begin to the death of Jesus. So the most famous passage in the Bible about regeneration is Old Testament passage. So this is how we are. This is Adam and Eve, this is the fall, and this is us today. And we, we are, we're, there's the battle. There's the battle. And the, the flesh is saying what? Do what you want. And this says, do what God wants. And this says, I can show you. <laughs> I can do it through you. And we say, I don't, I don't care. Sometimes. As Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. I don't know what a wretched man I am. Right? So, after the fall, there's death and separation. Romans 5, 12, what connection to Adam? There's the connection. We came into the world dead in trespasses and sins. And, and I want you to understand that Adam is the head, basically, the head of the human race. I've got a few things. Adam was our representative, and we were in Adam. I, I know it sounds really weird, and we've talked about this before, but when Adam sinned, the Bible says, through one man, Adam, sin in the world, and death by sin, death passed upon all. We all died, and every human being coming into this world, born in the likeness of Adam, until we believe, we're coming into this likeness right here, we're coming in dead. And we could say, well, it doesn't seem fair because Adam sinned. But, you know, my, my favorite illustration is the team, you know, football team lines up and the right guard jumps offside. Well, he's not the only one that goes back. The whole team goes back. And when Adam sinned, he wasn't the only one that felt the, the consequences. We all do. So we come into this world. He's our representative. There's a thing called the seminal view, which means we were in Adam. There's one, the representative view, in which Adam represented all mankind, uh, the head view of that. No matter how you look at it, when Adam sinned, it was imputed, credited to every person. We're going to later on, when we get a little further over in the study, it'll probably be 
Uh, it'll be before this semester's over. We're going to look at some terms like propitiation and imputation and justification and expiation. We're going to look at all those Asian words, and one of them is imputation. And what that really says is that when Adam sinned, Adam's sin was imputed to our account, and it was credited to every person, and their sin and death imputed to every person. And we don't like that, but that's the way it is. And I think that we inherited a flesh, a natural bent to do wrong, and we commit sin. We're going to get later on, we'll look at how, how do we sin. We sin because we, uh, we're naturally bent to sin. We're sin because we do personal sins. We're sin because Adam sinned. And we, all of that is an aspect of us. With that in mind, and with just a little bit of time we got left, we need to look at mankind and have you, if you've not ever thought about it this way, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, okay? To Romans chapter 1. And we just want to see what, we, what, I might, what Paul wrote down, what we might call is the different kinds of mankind. We can say there's three basic kinds of mankind. There's the bad man, there's the good man, and there's the religious man, okay? There's a bad man, which we'd call him immoral, there's a good man, which we'd say he's moral, and then there's a religious man. And so when you, when you look at human beings, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, basically lumps human beings into these three big groups. And, and so we can, we can look at them ourselves and see how they fit. Let's start with what we'd call the bad man, okay? The bad man, the immoral man. And there's two aspects or two ways to look at the immoral man. There's an atheistic man, which means that there's no God. He doesn't hold a God at all. He doesn't believe in God. We, it's, it's hard. There are a lot of people who say they don't really believe in God. But deep down, if you really challenge them on it, they'll say, well, maybe there is a God. I just don't know or anything. And we call you know, but th these are people, now notice in Romans chapter 1 verse 19 it says, uh, it says that which is evident about, uh, that which is known about God is evident for them. It's within them. God made it evident to them. Listen, people know there's a God. Did you know that the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has written eternity in our hearts? We know there's something more than this. He's written the rights and wrongs in our hearts. When people say there is no God, and there is no rights and wrongs, and there's no, they're lying to themselves. But what we'd call them, this is what he goes and says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been seen, so that they're without excuse. And even though they know there's a God, they don't honor Him. They don't give thanks. They become futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There are people who actually just say they don't believe there's a God. They reject God. There's no standards. There's no morals. Now, this is a person that you really don't want to live by. Because these people, if they want your, they'll come over in your yard at night and steal your water hose and just take it away. Or, or they'll just, I mean, they don't, they don't really have the values because they say that this is all there is. You only go around once. Might as well grub for all the gusto you can. I mean, just, that's, that's, there, there are people that are, we would say, are bad people. Okay, and then there's a, a humanism. Man is the center, decides what's right and wrong. We've got a whole culture. Right now, we've got a whole culture that says each person decides for themselves what's right and wrong. You know that. That's the culture we're in right now. 
That's why people can say, you don't have the right to tell me what's right and wrong because I decide what's right and wrong. And that's, a, that's, that's humanism and that's that kind of group. There's a second aspect uh, of it that, uh, of course, they're without excuse because God has revealed himself in creation. By the way, when a person says, uh, what about this person who's never heard? Uh, God, the creation, first of all, tells them there's a God. And if they respond to that revelation, he'll get them the information. Okay, the second one of the bad men is what I call the idealistic or the, uh, not idealistic, the idolistic. That means he, he, ha he changes God to be something else. Notice what it goes on to say. Professing, this is in verse 22 of Romans 1, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. And what they do is they change God to be something else. They make God fit whatever they desire. Have you ever thought about the statues of Buddha? Have you ever thought about the Egyptians? Why were there ten plagues on the Egyptians? Do you know why? Each, each one of the plagues was one of their gods. I mean, they worshipped animals. They worshipped uh, uh, beetles. They worshipped bugs. They worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped Ra, the sun. And so they looked and they chose to change God into something else. I've told you all this story. I think, I, uh, you've probably heard it at one time or another because I've told it a number of times. But Gene and I, a long time ago, I mean, this is like, probably 30 years ago, we were looking at different houses, We, you know, and uh, and we went by a person's house that was for sale, and they, you know, it was a little, we called them, and they said, yeah, you can come look at our house, and we went in, and they were not from this country, they were from a country like India, and uh, they were showing us the house, and they had a little boy, he's about this tall, and he kept pulling on my pants like this, and I went, hello, yeah, and he said, you want to see my God? That's what he said, you want to see my God? And I went, I didn't know what he was saying. I said, what? He said, do you want to see my God? And I didn't know what else to say. I said, yeah, sure. And so he went and ran into another room, and I followed him, and the, the parents just kind of looked at me like, well, you know, go follow him. And there was a box, and it looked like a, looked like a dollhouse. It was like a box. Had a had a roof thing on it, and it came down. It had two doors, and he opened it up, and there was a statue in there. And he said, this is my God. This is a little boy. Okay? So sometimes people... They worship animals. They worship the, the sun. They worship... Uh, I, I remember one uh, time I was going to... Uh, this is a long time ago. I, we were driving over by the cross-country course, and we had stopped to, to look at something, and the sun was going down, and there were four or five people, and they were worshiping the sun as it was going down. Okay, so people change... God and there's so there's the what we call the immoral person who who either rejects God or changes God to be something else. That's what Romans chapter one talks about. There's a second kind, and there's what we call the good man, the good man, and that's in Romans chapter two where he says uh, that you judge others. He says, you know, you're, you're the good guy and you judge other people, and yet you do exactly the same thing they do. And these are people who say, y y y there is a God, and to get to God, you, 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 you know, that I'm just doing the best that I can, and if, there, if there's a God, and who knows whether there really is or not, uh, what they don't understand is that the standard is perfection. When I thought that I could be good to go to heaven, I didn't know the standard. I thought the standard was just do more good than bad. I didn't know the standard was you could never do a bad. I didn't know that. I thought the standard was just try to be good. 
And so this is the good man. This is the person that you don't mind living next door to you. If you say, hey, uh, you want a key to my house to let, you know, if I ever need to let somebody in, they go, sure. You know, they're good people. Uh, They just don't realize what the standard is, and neither did I. I don't realize, I didn't know what the standard was. So there's a lot of what we'd say is good people out there. And then the third view Oh, by the way, they think they're better than others. But, but, you know, because as a whole, they say, I'm not bad like a lot of people. And if you say, do, you, how, do, do bad people go to heaven? No, they do not. Why well, are you going to heaven? Yeah, why? Well, I'm, I'm better than most people. You know? The third one is what we call the religious man. And as you look in Romans chapter 2, it's starting at verse 17. He's dealing with the Jew, speaking to Jews, but it could be anyone who's trying to work their way. They have a law. They have a system. They have some kind of way to get to God. It's a system of works to get to God. That's why uh, the, the Jewish people, they had all the, the system of works and, and uh, to try to get to God. And so there's, there's religious people. And uh, the problem is good works are just filthy rags. And there are so many people who say, I've gone to church all my life. I've done this, I've done this. Have you talked, have you all talked to anybody that's gone to church most of their lives, but they don't have a clue of salvation? Have you ever, I've, I've, talked, to, I've talked to a lot of people. And we say, listen, do you think you're going to heaven? Yeah, why? Because, well, you know, I've been in Sunday school all my life. And I go to church three times a week, and I do all this and do all this. And so they're religious people, religious people. Listen, you know, I hate to tell you this, but there are churches in this town that on Sunday mornings, there are people going to those doors, and they don't have a clue of salvation. They don't have a clue of the Christian life. They don't have any idea of knowing whether they're going to heaven or not. They think by going to church and, and being a part of a system that they're okay, that they're okay. I told you the story of, of uh, a Dallas Seminary professor that I had, and uh, he, had, he had traveled to South America for a mission trip, and while he was down there, he found a, a nun who had been there for 40 years working in a, in a ministry there. And so he thought, this is amazing. She has been here for 40 years. And so he went to see her. He just went to see her and said, you know, I actually teach in a seminary, and I've come down here for a mission trip, but you've spent your life here. And she said, yeah, I have. She said, what do you do exactly? And she did different things. And he said, isn't it amazing that God is so good that he allows you to serve him and and that he's the greatest greatest God of all? And she said, yeah, uh, my service is going to get me to heaven. And he said, what do you mean? She said, do you think I've done this for nothing? She said, by what I have done, I have earned my way to heaven. And he he tried to talk to her, but it didn't go very well. I mean, what what I'm saying is there are religious people who think by going to church, being good, doing all kind of things, somehow they're going to get to God. And the truth is, the problem, they don't recognize their need for a Savior. And we must recognize the need for a Savior. And so that takes us really, as we can look at this, think about this. The problem is this. And whether you're the bad man, which everybody would say the bad man. If you just take the world and you say, you think bad people are going to heaven, what do they say? No. And if you say, do you think good people are going to heaven? And some people will say, "Mm, probably. If you said, do you think religious people go to heaven? Let me ask you something. If you asked the Jew at the time of Jesus Christ, and you looked at them and said, see that Pharisee over there? You think they're going to heaven? What would the people say? Yes. 
They'd say, yeah, they keep all the rules. They have the long things. They have the tassels. They have the best seats. They give the most money. They do everything right. We're the sinners. By the way, you know what the sinners were? Sinners were the people who didn't keep all the rules, didn't keep all the stuff. Sinners, sometimes the sinners were the prostitutes, and sometimes the sinners were the tax collectors. Sometimes were the sinners the people who just didn't do, they didn't, they didn't go every time that the feast was going. They didn't offer a sacrifice whenever they thought they were supposed to. They didn't do everything the way they were supposed to. So they were considered the sinners, and they didn't measure up. And remember what Jesus said? He said to those Pharisees, he, he said, you take things and you put burdens on people that nobody can bear, that you can't bear, and you make them sons of hell twice as much as you are. That's what Jesus said. So the final summary is it doesn't matter whether you're a bad man or a good man or a religious man. And it doesn't make any difference. Nobody Nobody, there's none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody measures up. The wages of sin is what? It's death. And every human being owes God death. And and there's not one thing we can do about it. And if you look at it, so the bad, the good, and the religious all need a Savior. And that's why, you know, I've I've had people say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter as long as people go to church. I go, no. Going to church doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Going to church is where you worship and get trained to serve your Savior. Church isn't salvation. Church is the place where the believers, the body of Christ, comes together to worship and to be trained. Think about that. Going to church doesn't mean salvation in any way, shape, or form. When people say, well, they go to church, I say, what does that have to do with it? Why do we go to church? to worship Jesus Christ and to be trained and equipped. So the, the bad, the good, religious, they all need a Savior. So that takes us to one thing. If, 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 if nobody can be good enough, why did God give a law? Why did God give the Jewish people law? Think about it. Why did he give law? He took the Jewish people and he gave them... 613 commandments? Clarify their need. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. That, so what would you say? To clarify their need. Because need. they couldn't keep Okay, that, all right. You get a guy, I, when you start looking at it, there's, there's the, as somebody would say, the top ten, right? The top ten commandments. And then there's all these commandments dealing with foods, all these commandments dealing with clothes, all these commandments dealing with how you plow your fields. And then there are all these commandments about your sacrifices and what you do and when you bring them. And, all and then there's all these commandments about, you know, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and do this and do this and do this. And if you really look at the ten commandments, how many of us in this room have done, have broken all ten commandments? I said, that guy cut me off. I tell you, I hate that guy. I just murdered him, right? Didn't I just murder him? Isn't that what Jesus said? And you ever said, man, I wish I had that. Why do, how do they have that? How come they have that and I don't have that? That's coveting, right? I just did that. Paul said, I didn't really know all sin because I thought I was doing real good as a Pharisee until I got to the coveting part. And then when I coveted, the law showed me I'm a coveter and I died. I died right then as soon as I realized I sinned. I mean, anybody put anything before God? Yeah, every time we sin, we put ourselves before God. When you start going down the list of the top ten, don't lie. Have you ever lied? If you, 
We go, well, I think I lied once. So, okay, you just lied again because you lied more than once, right? So, I mean, you, you know, and, uh, you say, well, I have not committed adultery. What? You ever lusted? You go, does that count? Yeah, yeah, it counts. Yeah, that's what Jesus said. So, so you, what did you say? What, what is the whole purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show us that we're sinners and we need a Savior. I want you to look at, at, at chapter 3 for just a second. Go to verse 19. Just kind of flip Romans chapter 3 all the way over to, to verse 19. He says, now, now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. The law shuts your mouth because you say, well, I did. Did you do that? I have it. Yes, I have. I have. It shuts your mouth. It's just like when Jesus said, um, we got we to gotta stone this woman. And Jesus said, oh, okay. Whoever has no sin, just throw the first stone. And then I think he was writing in the ground. You know what I think he was writing? I think he was writing their sins. And they saw it. And it went, who, who left first? Oldest to the youngest. You know why? Because all us older people, we know we sin all the time. And we, it's just been piling up for years. We recognize it quicker than some young people. And uh, they just all left. Because it shows us that we're sinners. He says, it shuts our mouths because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why? You said it. Why by the works of the law can nobody be justified? Can't keep it. You can't keep it. Listen, you can't keep the top ten. You can't keep them. And how many do you have to have to break it? One. So if you said, yeah, but I, 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 I kept like number five, number six, number seven, number eight, number, I messed up on number nine, but then on number ten, I'm doing good. Well, if you messed up one time on number nine, you're out. He says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why? Because you can't keep it. And then he goes on to say, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Whenever law is there, law causes us to sin. You have to understand that. Paul later on says that the law causes sin. Now, it shows us sin, but it also causes sin. Because Paul said that he did not know Covington until the law said, Thou shalt not covet, and produced in him all manner of what? Covington. I've got a picture. I want to, it's, uh, it's one of the people in our church, and they're at one of those. It's like Branson or something. And there's a, a sign that says, Do not look through this hole. It says it. And there's a picture of the person standing there, and then the next picture is the person's looking through the hole. Because that's what happens when somebody tells you, don't walk on the grass. You go, go tell me to walk on the grass. I can walk on the grass if I want to. Don't look through this hole. Uh, I, I want to see what's through the hole. I want to see. If, don't tell me not to look through it, because what does that do? It goes right to this flesh. It goes right to this flesh. Because the flesh, as Romans 7 and 8 says, the flesh is enmity against God and cannot please Him and doesn't ever choose to please Him. So the law shows us that we are sinners and need a Savior. It points us to Jesus. In fact, sometime we, as we get a little further, if you look at the book of Galatians, He actually gives you three or four reasons for the purpose of the law. And one of them is to show your sin and the other is to actually point you to Christ. The other is to be your schoolmaster to guide you and point you toward the Messiah. And that's what law does. And by the way, listen to this. 
You'll, you'll love this. If you've never seen this, you know, people say, well, you know, you need to keep the law. The law, you need to be put yourself under the Mosaic law. I've had people tell me all the time, the Christian life is lived by law. And I say, no, no, it's not. Listen to this. If I can find it. Now, we know the law is good if it's used lawfully. <laughs> Paul's so funny. The law is good if it's used lawfully. He said, realize the fact that a law is not made for a righteous person. Who's a righteous person? Who's a righteous person? Huh? A believer. Yeah, every one of us in this room. Are you righteous? Of course you are. Okay? The law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, the rebellious, the ungodly, the sinner, the unholy, the profane, for those who kill mother, father, the immoral, homosexual, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound thinking. What's the law for? To show those people what? That they're sinners. The Mosaic law, the law is not the basis for the Christian life. That was, oh, I'm sorry, that's... 1 Timothy 1, 8 through about 11. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through about 11. So understand that the moment we trust Christ as Savior, we don't go under a law system. The only law we come under is called the law of Christ, which is the law of love. Jesus says, here's the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, and then love others as I have loved you. If you love God and love others, you fulfill the law. And so the law that we're under is the law of love. Loving God and loving people. We're not under the Mosaic law. You put yourself under the Mosaic law, it causes you to sin. That's why any churches that put their people under legalism and law causes great frustration. That's why we have freedom. That's why Paul says, says uh, you've been called to freedom, only don't let your freedom be for, for a sinning. But let your freedom be to serve others. You're free. I mean, I know people, they've been in law all their lives. That's all they've ever known. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't wear bathing suits, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, can't have a picnic, can't do, can't do anything. Got to wear, woman, got to wear a dress, can't wear pants, can't wear shorts, can't wear this, can't play cards, can't go to movies, can't do, it's just stuff after stuff after stuff that they've laid on. And by the way, legalism is laws and rules that the Bible never talks about. I mean, the Pharisees, they, they not only had the, the commandments, but they had all their rules that they added on because they'd say, you don't know how to act, so I've got to give you three, four, five things to do it. Anytime you put people in legalism, you know what you're telling them? They're not good enough to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. We just got to give you rules to live by instead of, instead of you living in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that points us to Jesus Christ, so powerful. So the results, man is sinful, God is perfect. How, do, how can man get to God? Well, okay, you've got to be as righteous as God. Is that right? You don't have to write all this down. Do you, do you have to be as righteous as God? Yeah. Well, we all fall short of that standard. In fact, the wages of sin is death. So how in the world are we going to be able to get to God? The only way is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's the only way. And I've got man has fallen, needs a Savior. How has God provided for the reconciliation of man? It is through his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's the only way. Through the Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we say story of the Bible. Perfect God brings sinful man. How? 
back to himself. How? Through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is the Savior. That's why there's no other way. There's no other salvation except through Jesus Christ. So, summary, man has fallen, needs a Savior. How has God provided for the reconciliation of man? It is through his son, Jesus Christ. If you start looking at the next lessons, we're going to start beginning to see what is the next lesson. Dealing with what? God's salvation plan. Think about it. Because we've now come to the point that we need it, right? Don't we need a Savior? And so let me give you, there's the verses for next time. God demonstrates His own love toward us. Why were you sinners? What happened? Christ died for us. And this is love. Not that we love God. He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation which means satisfactory payment.